almost everywhere in San Francisco, you can see Salesforce Tower. It's not just that it's the tallest building in the city, it's the most conspicuous. It's a rounded obelisk with a lit up top nine stories. And from nearly all angles, it looks like a big glowing toe in the middle of downtown SF. On our cold August nights, the lights tinge the fog passing through the skyline. Some people hate it, others probably just don't care. I think it's fine. Right now, it's also mostly empty. Since the shelter-in-place orders were enacted in March, the toe has become a billion-dollar monument to the remote work era. And as Salesforce's CEO Mark Benioff, that has to be deeply humbling. Benioff is a big man around these parts. I mean that literally he's a big guy, but he also has great power. But amid the pandemic, all he has to show for that power is a big corn husk. Meanwhile, Dreamforce, Benioff's annual fall human resources jamboree, that's probably canceled. So what's a billionaire to do? This is Tom Dotan, and on this episode of the Informations 411, I spoke to our reporter Kevin McLaughlin, who tried to answer that very question. He talked to the man himself for the piece, and Kevin looked into the state of Benioff both as a public figure and as a CEO. That's the second half of the show. The first half is a conversation about a story I wrote with our Facebook reporter Alex Heath. It looks at the big changes that Apple is making to its operating system that has it on a collision course with Facebook over advertising. That's probably going to put the squeeze on one of Facebook's biggest advertisers, mobile gaming companies. That's a big topic these days, so before we get to the Benioff, let's start off with my conversation with Alex. So Alex, on this one, we should probably start off by just explaining the various players here, because it's a little bit complicated. So we've got Apple, which is the device maker, Facebook, which is the platform, and then we've got the mobile game companies who are the advertisers. So what is the, let's just explain, like what is the change that Apple is making that has started this whole thing? So in iOS 14, which is Apple's you know upcoming release for uh, its iPhones and iPads in September, what they're essentially going to do is require outside developers to uh, opt in users to tracking them across other apps. And this is an activity that has been going on for a very long time um, through something called the IDFA, which is a unique kind of string of numbers assigned to, to each user that lets apps kind of track them at a high level in aggregate across across other apps. And basically what Apple's doing is saying, if you want to use this, we think that uh, you need to re- request permission from the user of your app before you're allowed to, to track any of their behavior outside of your own app. Right, right. Okay. So then how is this change affecting Facebook? Well, it affects Facebook in a pretty big way because Facebook relies on this data to do effective ad targeting, which is how it makes its money. And Facebook's advertisers really do rely on it to to be able to reach specific you know segments of audiences. In our story, we talk about how the mobile gaming world is is especially affected by this. They really rely on Facebook, uh, Facebook and Instagram, to reach uh, potential players and existing ones. And it's all you know usually tailored towards cohorts of people that they know will spend in games uh, and Apple's platform happens to be the platform where people spend the most on mobile games. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge, you know, vertical to top five ad vertical for Facebook and they've called it out on their earnings already as something that is going to impact them just across the board in terms of ad targeting, which could lead to lower CPMs and lower, lower revenues. So it's, it's a big deal. The whole industry is in the ad tech world is, is thinking through it and, you know, marketers are thinking through it and how are we going to be able to effectively target? So it's a, it's a big deal. 
Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that we didn't really get to work in in the story, but kind of came up as we were talking to people in the mobile gaming world and in ad world is just that games in particular, like you mentioned, um, are hugely reliant on advertising, especially Facebook advertising, because the targeting is very precise. And a lot of these companies, you know, rely on people making purchases in games. And the way to reach the right kind of people is to have the data on what kind of purchases people are making or their likelihood to, to buy you know, level ups or skins or things like that. And basically what Apple is doing is removing like the infrastructure to be able to find these types of people and encourage them to buy more fake stuff. To Apple's, you know, just to play devil's advocate, Apple says that they are offering something similar. It's just way pared down um, and it's got a very limited, um, you know, amount of data that you can collect and and cohorts of data you can collect versus what this other IDFA thing allowed. From what we're hearing, it's weak stuff. It's like, you know, high quality drugs versus street shit. So so you kind of hit on this, but like, what is Apple's motivation for doing this? I mean, very publicly, Tim Cook has said that we're the privacy company and they really try to stand apart from their competitors like Facebook and Google as the ones that care about our user privacy. Um, I mean, What's, what's the other side of that? What is Apple's motivation for doing it? Well, if you try to look at the forest through the trees, I guess, um, Apple is really turning to services uh, revenue to kind of telegraph its future growth to Wall Street as iPhone sales slow. And they're really focusing on subscriptions. And they have a gaming subscription service in the App Store already. Games account for the majority of App Store revenue. And they're pushing people increasingly to their own gaming subscription service. Yeah, Apple does not have a history with advertising, even though they still seem to be trying it um, in terms of being successful at it. Not a successful one. Right. Yeah. So they seem to still be trying that while also really prioritizing subscriptions. So, you know, if you make the ads less effective for everyone else, then, um, you know, potentially that consolidates the industry in your favor. Right, right. So I want to ask your opinion as a Facebook reporter, because one of the things that struck me as we were reporting on this is like Facebook is a, which is a behemoth, you know, they're no like, you know, small player just trying to make their way in the world uh, is really on the defensive here and kind of in the dark as to how much this is going to affect them. I mean, was there anything that struck you as a Facebook reporter when doing this story about just kind of the unusualness of the situation? Yeah, I mean, Facebook is used to being the kingmaker in social networks, consumer software, in terms of the big baddie that everyone is scared of. We're always talking about how they're going to crush or clone some other competitor. But when it comes to Apple and Google, I mean, the tables really are reversed. It really shows the kind of platform app power dynamics at play in tech uh, at a macro level where Apple owns the operating system and they own the hardware that the majority of, of mobile game spend goes through. And so essentially the rails that Facebook operates on. So in a sense, Facebook is powerless against Apple. Facebook says ad targeting is good for small businesses, which are the majority of its advertisers. It's good for users because they'd rather see ads that are tailored to their interests than random ads that they don't care about, which I think that that argument is fair. I, I love seeing ads tailored to my interest. I can't tell you how much it pleases me to see that. I mean, personally, I'd rather, I don't think anyone would like to see ads at all, but I mean, Facebook's original theory with building ads was like, it's it's not ads, it's content. It's like, it's we're gonna make it so personalized that it, it looks like content and it worked for them. So Apple's really attacking that whole ethos and saying that kind of ads are just at large 
uh, bad, um, although at, or invasive, and you know, at the same time, they seem to still be tinkering away at their own app ad network. You, you sort of touched on this as you know, just a few hours before we recorded this, we had this kind of amazing PR bombshell go off, uh, where Epic, which is the maker of Fortnite, uh, kind of intentionally got itself banned from the Apple App Store uh, to prove a point about Apple's hegemony. I mean, is there anything that we can draw from from that episode that could presage, you know, that could presage a fight down the road uh, when it comes to Apple's relationship with other companies? I think Apple is in for a very tough road on all fronts, uh, from a partnerships level, from a regulatory level. It's very clear that even though Apple is not a monopoly in the traditional sense of owning, like they they're not they don't have the most mobile phones. Uh, you know, in the world, that would be Android, but they they control their own platform to such a degree that it's really irking people across the board, Epic and the, and the game industry, which says that, you know, the 30% cut that Apple takes is too high and that people should be able to download apps outside of the App Store. They should have more choice like they do on the Mac. Apple seems to be trying to play to its strengths and uh, uh, at the same time, really frankly pissing off uh, a lot of other folks so uh, I think that it's all in a similar vein and that it's you're going to probably see increasingly bigger and bigger companies come out against certain Apple policies in the months and, and year ahead and um, well, maybe that says something about Apple that even though it's not a monopoly in the traditional sense of the smartphone market, that its platform is so big and companies rely on it so much that there should be more competition in terms of the app store and payments. Yeah, yeah. No, like uh, like our editor Nick Wingfield would say, uh, it's a battle royale. <laughs> um, all right, Alex, thank you so much for joining. Thanks. There's a lot more to come here, so I'm sure we'll have you back on here sooner to talk about All right, Kevin. So one of the biggest parties in San Francisco every year, and when I say party, I mean real party. Well, actually, why don't you explain to me what is Dreamforce and its significance to Salesforce? Well, Dreamforce started out in 2003 as their annual customer conference. And from there, it's kind of morphed into uh, a cultural event. Big name performers play at the end of, um, I believe it's day three or day two. So yeah, Dreamforce really is kind of you know, we use the term jamboree. Um, I think that fits. You're, you're talking about Mark Benioff getting up on stage, giving a, a hint at where Salesforce is looking strategically in terms of the next technologies that they're going to be acquiring and, and sort of pushing uh, their customers to also get to know. And there's also a salesman aspect to it as well, right? Uh, Benioff is sort of like a big showman, almost borderline clown-like character who entertains people as well as, you know, gives his State of the Union address, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting when he is giving his keynote. I watched the one from last year, for example. Chairman and co-CEO Mark Benioff. He was walking around the auditorium the whole time. He, he looked happy to me. That was just my impression, watching him sort of weaving together the company of Salesforce and the business of Salesforce with, you know, current themes of importance in society. Because we are doing these things together. We are creating this company together. He is so amazingly adept at 
bringing it all together under one roof. And I think that is the way to describe Dreamforce is kind of like Mark Benioff's big tent. Yeah. So what does it mean that this year, it sounds to me like based on your interview with the man, uh, Dreamforce is off? Let's let's go back to Salesforce's Q1 earnings at the end of May. Um, the very first question in Q&A was, hey, Mark, you know, can you give us a sense of what's going on with Dreamforce? And his response during the earnings call was very sort of vague. It was it was kind of like, well, stay tuned. He didn't say there's not going to be one. And so if, if, if you fast forward to our interview, that's what sort of took me aback. Definitely sounded like, you know, three months later, two months later, uh, I think the realities of COVID-19 have started to, to, to sink in for him. But when we can have a 10,000-person keynote and a 100,000-person conference safely, I'll be the first one to do it. But that's not where we are today. So why don't you describe what's in its place? We live in the age of the virtual event, and I can't think of a single event that was in person that didn't try to figure out at least some virtual component. I mean, what's what's the Salesforce answer to the virtual Dreamforce? So it sounds like the answer to uh, a virtual Dreamforce has been happening uh, ever since uh, mid-March. Uh, Salesforce at that time started doing online uh, videos, which they posted on YouTube and on their website. Mark Benioff didn't get involved, I think, until about April. Um, but then the event started to take on the the feel of a, of a Dreamforce type format or even like a late night talk show. He interviewed Kevin Johnson, CEO of Starbucks. He interviewed Jewel. She played some songs. Is there any chance we could encourage you to share? I would love that. So yeah, I think that these these uh, event series, which are called, he call, they're calling it Leading Through Change, um, have now become kind of like a mini Dreamforce uh, happening in a weekly format. Mark at one point uh, during our, our interview said that I think Leading Through Change is at this point more important than Dreamforce. So it's interesting. It sounds to me like he's embracing the sort of cultural significance of Dreamforce and his role as a luminary in Silicon Valley and trying to, like you say, lead through you know, example or whatever, uh, more so than the kind of business development aspect of Dreamforce, which for a company, as far as the company's concerned, is, you know, more probably financially significant. So that's Mark Benioff as the public figure. But your story also goes pretty deep into the business side of Dreamforce. And it's been pretty messy. Uh, I mean, you talked about rumors of a leadership struggle and issues that he had with the co-CEO, Keith Block. What was the story there? So this all went down right before COVID really started to sort of have its impact in uh, in the U.S. at least in, in March. Uh, I believe it was February 24th. Salesforce had earnings, uh, Q4 earnings, and then on that call they announced that co CEO Keith Block, who joined the company in 2013 after 26 years as one of Oracle's top salespeople, um, was leaving. And, you know, on the earnings call, they kind of said that, you know, he and Mark were sort of falling over themselves to say, to congratulate each other and talk about how great friends they are. We had heard rumors uh, for, for months in the intervening months that, you know, maybe things weren't so rosy. I asked Mark, you know, what happened with Keith? Um, he basically said of the rumors, you know, that stuff's not true. And then he kind of proceeded to say the same thing, like, you know, Keith and I are good friends. Uh, we still talk, we still regularly are in touch. Uh, and actually the most interesting, interesting thing that he said, which I don't think has been reported before, was that he, Mark, is actually uh, trying to help Keith Block get a CEO job at a new company. 
Um, and I asked Keith uh, Block about this, and he just said, stay tuned. What do you think about that, really, though? I mean, it, it's hard to say it was a huge success when the person that he had in that role didn't last for all that long there. Uh, and maybe they've kept things on good enough terms that he's going to help him find a new job. But, I mean, when you look at the future of Salesforce as a company, does it need a co-CEO? I mean, does Mark Benioff... Uh, you know, he clearly likes the limelight. Uh, is he someone who is trying to groom someone to be his replacement uh, rather than his co-equal? I do think that Mark Benioff has brought a lot of very talented people into the company, and he has a, a very large pipeline of executives that could step in one day and either be co-CEO or if he were ever, to, if Mark Benioff were ever to leave, there's a lot of people who could step up and be the CEO. And so, you know, right now, you know, people like Brett Taylor, who's the president and COO, promoted in December to that role. He's got a path to at least being a co-CEO someday. Mark Benioff also pointed out uh, Gavin Patterson, the former CEO of British Telecom, who joined the company earlier this year. Um, Mark didn't say anything about him in a co-CEO context, but clearly, if you know Gavin were to be the business CEO or the Keith Block in that arrangement. Brett Taylor, as a, as a product technology visionary type, would pair nicely with that. And that's, what the, that's really what Salesforce had when they had Keith Block and Mark Benioff. I mean, Mark Benioff is good at many different things and not just products. But I get the feeling that Mark Benioff, they have such an abundance of talent that I think he likes having co-CEOs just to maximize the, the, the ability for those people to rise up in the company. Yeah, makes sense. L lastly, Kevin, you know, Salesforce is a company that was built on deals. They are hugely acquisitive. That's kind of their whole thing. Um, sounds to me like you found in your reporting of the story that they're very much on the prowl for new things. So what, what are they looking for these days in terms of the next acquisition? So what we found out is we don't have hard uh, info that Salesforce is talking to a specific company, but we heard that they are interested in a, in a software segment called robotic, robotic process automation, which is basically software-based robots that perform repetitive tasks that people do on computers, like updating addresses or updating customer records and things like that. I do think that for Salesforce, they, they stepped into AI four years ago and have AI sort of baked into a number of different products. But they don't have this automation software piece. And I think it could work really well with their lineup of products just because sales, customer service, marketing, all of those areas have an enormous amount of automation built in and, and will continue to have automation built in. I do think that maybe the, the story of how it impacts Salesforce's customers is what could be the next new for them. Uh, all right, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining. Go back to your vacation. Talk to you later. Thanks, Tom. All right, that is today's episode. Thank you so much for joining. Appreciations, as always, to Ariella Markowitz, our producer. And of course, uh, my thanks to those who joined me in this episode, Alex Heath and Kevin McLaughlin. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you back here next week.